Let's start. Um, we've got a um, a number of. Can you get me Yankee? Um, here, Doc. Can you get? Sorry, I'm sorry. God, I'm just. We're still trying to catch up here. Um, we've got some really important things to get to tonight um, that I think are probably going to surprise you guys. I, I'm not sure. Um, Maria, welcome. Welcome. Um, Thank you. Hi. Good to see you. Good to see you. And I'm glad. I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad everybody. Let's 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 start with prayers because I I know lots has gone on. I mom or Connie's mother-in-law. Well, anyway, let's um, let's take a minute for prayers because I it it's been a serious ordeal and. And I know people went through a lot, and I'm not sure what's happening, but I know a lot of you got um, burdens on your heart. So let's um, let's say prayers. Any prayer request, Connie? You obviously want to pray for your mother-in-law. Connie just told me that her mother-in-law is in hospice, um, and you know we've sort of been carrying her with Connie for a long time now. So. Anyway, um, any other prayers? Any other prayers? God, how humbling to pray with you guys. Come on, I know you guys have got some prayers. Maria? All right. All um, right. <laughs> I, I talked with a friend yesterday, and he, he is um, returning to enter seminary, and he asked for, for prayers for that. He was before in a Franciscan order, but he left, and so let's hope that uh, everything goes through this time. Well, you know, one of the interesting things for me about seminarians is, I mean, it's so much more, it so much more directly involves God's will. You know, lots of us go through life wanting to do things, and some of us think we're going to be seminarians and then learn that that's, I mean, that's why they have such a long period of discernment, because... There's a lot at stake. What's his name? His name is Jose. Jose? Yeah. Maria, any prayers for you? Um, for me, I would like um, to, and, and for me and for all of you, that we may make the best use of this Lent time to grow in grace and closer to God. Good for you. Good Thank thing. you. Yeah, yeah, it would have been my prayer. You took it from me. That just means we share it already. It means we share it already. Bob, yeah. um, there are two people in our family who passed this last week. Wow. Sharon and Fred. Sharon and Fred? Yes. And Fred was 99 years old. So God bless him. He wow. lived a good, wonderful life. But uh, Sharon and Fred, if you will pray for them, I'd okay. appreciate it. Um, how old is Sharon, can I ask? I believe that she was probably 75, right yeah. around that era. So, yeah. yes, they. she had had health problems uh, and she, for years and years. So I was... You know, she lived a good long life as well. Um, anybody else? 
Sorry. Anybody else? Yeah, I know, Dr. Doe. Um, um, Connie, what's your mother-in-law's name again? Uh, Jackie. Jackie? Jackie, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, how good it is to be together. Um, there was a time in the middle of this freeze when I was like hitting a wall and realized all the things I preach about, <laughs> not taking things for granted, sort of came up and hit a square in the face because you realize that you might not get out of this thing. It was that cold and um, a lot of people suffered and a lot of people went through trials. Um, what a great tribute um, to our human nature, what you gave us. Um, that people endured the way they did. What a resiliency in humans. There's so much that looks down on our human nature um, in these modern times. Um, there's nothing to say um, except praise for the strength and courage, the helpfulness on the part of so many people who step forward to help. Lots. Anyway, for the um, ordeal we just went through, for whatever pieces of self-knowledge came to us during it, the humbling graces that were part of it, all of it. Um, how good to be a part of your world, to um, suffer together and to come together at moments like this um, to share our uh, expressions of gratitude with you and each other. Let a blessing be upon all of us and all of us going forward, what we're doing. We ask a special blessing on Connie's mother-in-law, Jackie. Um, Connie has been carrying her. I don't think I don't think she'll let go of her soon either, um, no matter what happens. But watch over her if this is the last part of her life. Um, keep her cheerful. Um, given the woman that she is, let this be um, a period of growing even closer to you. She obviously is close to you already. Um, let it draw her even closer. Um, for Maria's friends, um, for um, Jose, Jose um, tough point of crossroads, uh, tough crossroads to for a young man to come in his life um, and feel the dedication and go to a seminary. Some people are called, some people aren't. Um, they won't know, he won't know um, without going through a period of discernment, or maybe he will. But be with him, whatever his, whatever he comes to. Um, your will means a lot to him, obviously. So um, help him to know what it is, um, whatever it is. For Sharon and Fred, that in, yeah. Um, Fred, ninety-nine years old. Um, he's going on to a better life. Time to be glad. Genuinely, put these sorrows away. Um, receive him into your kingdom. Um, um, let all the good that he's done in the world, known or not known, um, make a quicker opening to you. If there's time in purgatory, let our prayers help. Um, forgive him his sins. Um, receiving, receive him into your kingdom. Let him know the joy, finally, that's um, obviously been a part of his life, all of his life. 
Same for Sharon. Receive her into your kingdom. Forgive her her sins. If there's a time of purgatory, let our prayers help. One of the things we're going to see from Dante tonight is that prayers move. How can they not? Um, you're a God of love. Um, sometimes in our pride, we become so self-sufficient. We think we can do everything on our own. And one of the truths of our faith is people are praying for us and helping us, and we don't often, don't often even know it. So let our prayers help both of them, Fred and Sharon. Um, let a blessing be upon all that we're doing with Dante. Dante is taking us to the heart of the mysteries um, at the center of our faith. Let all that we're doing strengthen us and and most importantly, not, not just live what we're learning, but have the courage to bring it to our world because our world so badly needs it. And just to back up what Maria said, um, my image of purgatory has always been, it's a, it's a period I look forward to, of all of us climbing purgatory together, that um, we have the prayers of each other to help us. So whatever our particular weaknesses for each one of us, help us to hold on to each other so that we can find a strength in knowing that others are helping us when we face those weaknesses in ourselves. What a great blessing for this to be a part of our work together. We offer these prayers, Christ. You are our Lord. In your name, amen. Okay. Um, I was going to do a, a, a poem tonight, a lyric, um, because we didn't last night, and I want—I really want to get us back up because um, I, I know at least for me, and I assume it's the truth for you guys that once we miss a week, it's—it's it's, it's like a couple of weeks. It's like a big hole opens up, and so I want to—I want to do—I want to spend some time to review to make sure we're all together, but I do want to read something. Did you get a, <coughs> Sorry. Um, the reading Monday morning was um, um, was ready made for our course because last time we met we we just accompanied um, Dante and Virgil through St. Peter's Gate. And the reading on Monday's Mass was uh, a reading um, on the day of the chair of St. Peter. And so I'm not going to let that pass. So um, in place of our lyric, what I'd like to do is do the readings for Monday morning and then just comment because it's appropriate. We're at that point in Dante's Purgatory where the two of them are entering active purgation and um, sometimes these things can just become mental abstractions in our heads um, as if they're not real, but, um, but we take we take the chair of St. Peter seriously. It's an authority that Christ gave Peter. And so I'd just like to take a minute with it because it speaks so directly to the work that we're doing, okay? The, the reading from the Old Testament, I think, was from um, Peter's first letter. And in that letter, he says, Beloved, um, Old New Testament, the letters, I exhort the presbyters among you, he says, don't lord it over people. Don't act like you're something. Tend the flock of God in your midst, overseeing not by con um, constraint, but willingly. Give yourself. 
um, as God would have it, not for shameful profit, but eagerly do not lord it over those assigned to you, but be examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd is revealed, um, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Um, the graces that are a part of our life will crown us. It's exactly what we're going to see happening to Dante when he comes to the end of purgatory. So that was from Peter's letter. That was the first reading. But this was the scripture. And so I want to, I want to read this. Okay, you all know, you've all heard it forever, but it's a stunning moment to me. This is when Christ asked the disciples, who do the crowd say, I am? Who do the people say, I am? And they can't answer. And then he turns to the disciples and say, who do you say, I am? And then he turns to Peter. I, in some sense, I, just so you know, I may be heretical on this. In some sense, I, I look at this legitimately as... As, as one aspect of the founding of our church. I think an argument can be made that the church is founded in this moment, but I'm not going to press that, and I certainly wouldn't argue it, but, but I want to just, it has that kind of importance for the beginning of things. I'm going to put you guys on mute just to help, and if, if you want to say anything, just, you know, don't hesitate. Unmute yourself and, and step forward, but I, sometimes I know it helps the audio. This is the this is the scripture reading from Monday. When Jesus went to the region of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now naturally, he said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter said in reply, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm sorry. Sorry, you guys. Um, Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. Hell will not be able to withstand Christ wanting to penetrate it. I will give you the two key I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You know that in the reading that we've done, hi Mir Jane, it's good to see you. <coughs> You know that in the reading we've done, um, we've experienced, we've encountered this thing that the um, pagan poets called the taking of the auspices. I'm going to give you guys a quiz right now, and everybody who doesn't answer gets dismissed. How's that? What's a taking of the auspices? We've gone over this in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. <clears throat> Test time, you guys. Taking of the auspices. It's checking signs in nature. Good. I'll take that. All of you are saved. You can thank Anne. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's close enough. It, 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 it's, it's an expression used to describe an experience with an omen. An omen is given, some omen, somewhere. 
It can be a person speaking. It can be birds doing something. Something happens in, in, in an event in nature, and the people present see it as oracular. Something miraculous is happening. But they knew that, that people with vivid religious imaginations would often misread. People do that. It happens today with religious people, Catholics, Protestants. Um, so in order to check that against that tendency, that omen had to be confirmed. So they waited for a confirmation. It, it happened numerous times in the Iliad when, he, when Aeneas was on the Tiber. He saw the uh, omen of the pig with the 30 piglets, and he got a confirmation. In the Odyssey, it happened a number of times. A prophet would say something, it would be confirmed. One of the more important ones that I remember going over with you guys is the night before battle, um, Odysseus um, hears the, one of the women, the um, servants of his house, lamenting and crying out a curse against the suitors. She says something about Zeus wanting to take vengeance because the suitors have been breaking, grinding down her knees. They're images of the Cyclops. They've been eating people out of house and home. I remember talking about the way they grind the bodies down. Cyclops is an image of what's at the heart of the suitors. And this old woman cries out. And Odysseus hears Zeus thunder. I, I may have those backwards. The thunder may have come first, but I, you know, I have to go back and check it. But the one event happened, and then it was answered by another. So that's taken as a confirmation. The church does this all the time. I think we've talked about this with all the sightings of Mary, because lots of people, I'm sure, countless people have probably come forward and said they've seen Mary or had apparitions or visions. Or the church has to confirm them because they may not be real. In this particular instance, Christ says, who do, who do the people say um, the Son of Man is? Um, in, the other, in one of the other Gospels, it said none of the other dis, um, disciples could answer it. And finally, said, Peter says. And then Christ says, so, none of the others answer. And Peter says, you're Christ. You're the Christ. And then Christ says to him, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father, and I say this to you, you're Peter. Christ, Peter expresses an omen. You're the Christ. Who confirms it? God himself. That's stunning. This is not just a confirmation from nature or some, you know, some other character. This is Christ himself saying. You didn't get that on your own. Peter's just been given this miraculous power, and it's confirmed by Christ. And it was on the basis of that that he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of the netherworld will, will not prevail against us. So it's a stunning moment. Christ, God, is turning over this power to, to Peter and giving him the two, king, the two keys to the kingdom. And lots of people, I mean, lots of Protestants are not going to accept that because that's an extraordinary power. Why would Christ have given all that power to a man? Well, I mean, my answer to that is if, he, if Peter didn't have that power, how would he answer all the evil that the church is going to face in its history? From with inside itself, I don't, want to, I don't want to romanticize this at all. I think you guys know me by now. From within the church and from without. 
Without that power, the church would have been wrecked. One of, one of the testimonies of our, the truthfulness of our church is that it could have withstood all the things that's happened to it over the centuries. That our church is still standing is the best evidence of its divine nature that I know of. So the reading we just had um, is not a small one. It's really important and it actually goes directly to what we've been doing because we, last time we met we were, we were there at St. Peter's Gate. So anyway, I thought you might enjoy that. Um, okay. Um, and let's, let me, um, let me do a, um, as quick a review as I can here. Okay, when we last met, we were at St. Peter's Gate, and I want to get there as quickly as I can, but I want to try to pull things together again because we've not been together for a couple of weeks, so let me, let me try to m call to mind some important principles for the work that we've been doing. One of the reasons Dante is writing this poem is so that we can see Okay, I'm going to say that again because it sounds ridiculous, ridiculously simple, but it's... You know that Christ often heals blind men. You know, that he will spit in his hand and, and give people their sight. The disciples constantly ask Christ questions that show how blind they are. Even after, even after having been taught for a lengthy period, they still don't see. You know, um, so... Christ asks us to repent. He begins his ministry by calling us to repent. We're in Lent, and we're being asked to take that seriously right now. How can we repent if we don't see our sins, number one, and two, what to do about them? The church makes that obvious because we've got, you know, um, the Eucharist and confession, but sometimes I think we take it for granted. So at the heart of this book is Dante's wanting to help us see ourselves as we are, and um, because of the mercy offered to us through Christ, to see how we can answer our sins. I know this must sound, I hope this doesn't sound too sixth grade catechism, but it's at the heart of our book. Um, so that's at the center of our work. The work is, it's, it's, it's as if it's an effort on the part of poetry to help recover something, but it, it does, it's not just catechetical. It's a work of poetry going beyond catechesis in what it does. So one of the things we've been doing is looking at those things that are mysterious to us. And when we were in hell, we saw lots about our, ourselves I don't think we ordinarily seen. And in purgatory, we're going to see more. Um, there's two things I want everybody to hold on to, just principles we've talked about before, but I want to call them to mind here as we move forward again. One of them, remember that the book began with Dante in a dark wood and saying, for the good that came out of it, um, death could scarce be bitter, but if I would show the good that came out of it, I must talk about things other than the good. One of the truths that we learn from Boethius is that God is doing everything he can to bring good out of evil. So here's this question of our sight again. How well do we see that day-to-day -day living? Do we let the bad things 
overwhelm us? Do we really see good at work? I'm not sure that we can see well if we don't see with Christ's love. So that's a question of how open we are to him. Because if we see with his love, presumably we're going to see a lot more than we would see without it. We would be in some ways blind. Dante says this great good came from what happened to him. But to get to it, he's got to go to this bad, okay? So the book begins with Dante descending into the depths of sin, okay? In that that descent, we're given images of various stages of sin as they go deeper and deeper and become more and more hidden, more and more obscure, okay? So they're not sins on the surface, Dante's taking us into the darkest part of the soul where there is little light, Christ isn't there, in order for us to see the real depth of our sin. And I want to underscore that because I think most of us go through life, you know, conf- most of us go through confession, and, um, but I'm not sure that a lot of us want to face the depths of our sin because, in, I'm, I'm speaking maybe more on my own here, um, personally, but I think the depths of our sin is sometimes so great that we'd rather not look at them. T.S. Eliot said, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Sometimes we avoid things. Um, One of the reasons it's important to see the depths of our sins is because if we don't, I think we, we undercut, downplay Christ. If they're so small, why did he have to come? And I'll put it differently. I think they are as great as they are, and they are obscure as they are, because the evidence of that is that we killed God. We killed. We disobeyed him. We turned away from him. Um, When he came to help us, we put him on a cross. So the, the worst sin of ours involves God. We killed him. Every other sin is hidden in that. If we don't go to the depths of, of hell with Dante, there's just a lot we won't see about ourselves. And if we don't see it, how can we repent? How can we answer Christ's call? So the descent is the first stage. We can't go up the mountain until we go down. Okay. Now the ascent up the mountain presumes its condition on our having seen sin. The whole movement up the mountain is um, in response to the mercy that Christ offers us to answer our sins. So the difference between the people in hell and, and purgatory, we've gone over this numerous times, is they're all, they're, all res- they're all marked with the same sins. They all carry the same sins. The difference is the people in um, purgatory um, want to acknowledge them. They trust God. They're learning to work with him, to move with him. So they're doing penance, they're undergoing penance to put their sins away. So in hell, what we see, this is what's so amazing about what Dante's done, is people are trapped in a sin, doing something, wanting something, that they made more important than God. That's what they wanted. That's what they've got. And they're frozen in. That's eternal. 
You know, they're not going to go someplace else. That's what they wanted. That's what they've got. So the contrapasso around them is just an expression of the world they've chosen for themselves. So there's an arrest. It's frozen. It, it's, a, it's frozen in time, eternity. That's what they wanted. That scene fixes them. That's what hell is, as Dante shows it to us. In purgatory, we see the same sins, but they're being undone. Actions are being taken with the help of God's grace to put them away. And if you've been reading, you know that you, you, you almost can't go on a ledge without encountering sinners who are praying. Everybody is praying for everybody else. So what we're seeing is that love is efficacious. Love, it, it, you know, in, our, <laughs> in the self-sufficiency of our pride, you know, we tend to pride ourselves on what we can do and we're capable of doing so much. Love is at work with, um, beyond us. And it's working. It's efficacious. It has an effect. So there's a whole community of people who are taking on penance and who are praying and whose prayers are helping other people, even if they don't see it, because love is working. Remember the, the poem began with Mary going to Lucia and Lucia to Beatrice and Beatrice to, to Virgil. Dante didn't see that that was going on. He had no notion. And he learns about it later from Virgil. But a whole divine order was at work of love working on his behalf. So that's the first. Dante wants to show a good, but to show it, he has to show the, the darkness that was the condition. He can't talk about the good without showing the bad that he had to overcome. Okay. But I would, I would show the good that came out of it. I must talk about things other than the good. So he has to go down. Second thing is that, remember, we've talked about this. Um, the central theme of purgatory is going home. God. People are going home. You know, we spend our life here like everything we do is going to settle us and this is our home and everything has to be perfect <laughs> or we're not happy. Um, Dante is very clear that that's not the case. So is St. Augustine. You know, um, the church is a pilgrim church. It's on its way. The great theme of the Purgatorio is going home. People are returning to their father, to the creator they were once in union with. Okay. Um, and we've talked about the importance of memory as an aspect of the whole work. That the whole of the Commedia is an expression of memoria, memory, of recalling. It's particularly true in the, in the Purgatorio. Um, they have to pick up their sins and, um, and move forward. And, and the understanding here is that they're moving forward the grace of Christ. Remember at the center of the math are Christ's words, do this in memory of me. We've been talking about this now for a couple of weeks. That, that term anamnesis, that's the word to describe Christ's words, anamnesis, to, to, to go back and carry forward. Do this in remembrance of me. Take me into you. Go back and pick this up and go forward. So the, the climate purgatory is recovering memory. It's to, it's to recover what was lost, what was once had and has since been lost. So all the efforts at penance, 
are to strip away those things that get in our way of recovering God. We get too much of the world. Over and over again, Dante's going to say in the purgatory, people are trying to strip away the hold the world has on us. Um, here's another test, quick test. What were, the, what were the four goods that Boethius said we had to be careful of? The four goods that, that are genuine goods, the trouble is we give them too much importance. Do you remember what they were? And don't save anybody this time. Let let people let let this group struggle some. Wealth, fame, power, and pleasure. Okay. <laughs> did you get those off your notes, Connie? Yes, I did. <laughs> yes. Those came off too fast. I know. Yes. Connie, say them again. Uh, wealth, fame, power, and pleasure. Yeah, and those are the exact things that Dante is going to have. He's going to encounter in people struggling to put off in purgatory because the attraction of those is so great. Okay. Now, so hold on to this idea. The theme, the action of the purgatory is going home. It's people returning to their home, to their father. Our, our father should be more important than every other thing, even our families in our life. If we make our families more important than he, then we're in trouble. We're in trouble. But here's one of the things that's hidden in that, and we won't see it realized concretely until the Paradiso. So this is the second thing I want everybody to hold on to, not, not just Dante having to go back, but um, the idea of who our Father is. And the idea that informs the whole of the Divine Comedy is the Trinity. We've talked about that a number of times now. And I want to read you that line from St. Thomas because I think it's so important. In one of his works on the Trinity, Thomas says this, One is a part of two, and two of three, as one man is a part of two men, and two men of three. But it is not thus in God, for the Father is as much the whole of the Trinity. And he gives the Latin for that. The Father is the same in magnitude as the Trinity. That's why we say one God. Does that mean... Um, the Spirit and the Son are greater because they're two? They're greater than the Father? Absolutely not. That's the mystery. Does that mean the Son, as one, is less than the Father and Spirit because they're two? No. What, I mean, to, to grasp that mystery, we have, we have to get out of the habit of thinking in earthly terms, in terms of quantity or time and space as we know it, because time and space, as we knew it, does not govern God's kingdom. We saw that really clearly in Boethius. We're in eternity. There's no past. There's no future. There's this boundless present. So in the, 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 the reality of the Trinity is that each of the person indwells wholly in the other without losing their individuality. The, the Son is distinct. When, when the father conceives of himself, when he thinks about who he is, that conception, that image, is the son. That's why he's begotten, not made. He's begotten. He's one with the father. He's consubstantial with him. Right? And the love between them is the spirit. So each one of the persons is as whole as the whole of the Trinity, and yet they're distinct. So one of the things that's happening as Dante moves up purgatory is that he's beginning to shed those earthly ways of seeing 
in his return home and beginning to move closer and closer to God so that <coughs> everything that happens will take the form of a community, people working together, doing things together. When we enter the Paradiso, we're actually going to see people indwelling. That's going to be one of the amazing things about the Paradiso. It's an extraordinary thing when we get there to see it. But the thing I, I just want to impress here, those have been two of the principles that have been with us from the beginning. That man was made to love and be loved, to be one with another without losing his individuality, his distinctness. Buddhism, Hinduism, lose that. In Eastern religions, man loses his individuality and sort of merges with a whole. That's absolutely contrary to the teachings of the church and Christ. Each one of us is made in the image of God. We were meant to be united with him and still be who he was. That means everything we do. We're not Calvinists. We don't believe everything's scripted. We believe each one of us is a new creation, a completely new creation. Whatever we do will be original with us. Will we ever be able to do it completely without Christ's help? No. But we're not Calvinists. We don't have a script. God isn't saying, this is your outcome. You know, we have free will. Each one of us is doing something new. It's like we're carrying on the act of creation. Like we're learning to recover what God gave us to be. So the whole action of purgatorio is to go home to recover this union that we had with God in order to become who he gave us to be. When in the world, we lost it in this dark wood. I'm okay, thanks, Don. Let me stop. Those are, the, those are the two principles that I wanted to just, you know, review because they're so, they're so important in everything we're doing. Let me take a minute. Anybody, we've talked about a, a, a lot of things, you know, so far in, the, in our work in, in the Inferno and here in Purgatorio. But any questions on anything before we turn more directly to the, some of the more minor concerns? I must not be doing something here if you guys don't have questions. Connie, that's a question on your... No? No? Melody, I've missed your questions for three weeks. It's a good thing you're not physically present because I would beat you over the head for being not here because I've missed you. Come on, you have, I don't believe you don't have questions. I've missed you too. Um, um, I'm just I'm catching up. I'm writing all these notes down. So give me a minute to put my questions back in my head and then I will definitely <laughs> ask them. Because I do have, I mean, I love this book. I know I say that every time, but um, I've really enjoyed it. So... I'll, I'll make some notes and then I'll ask some questions. Okay. Give Any, me a minute. Anybody else? Anybody? Just some quick things. Remember that we talked about the mode of knowing for each realm is different. The mode of knowing is for each realm is different because the reality, this is so crucial, the reality of each realm is different. Okay? The mode of knowing is different because the reality is different. The mode of knowing in the inferno is irony. Right? We've talked about this. The souls in heaven don't see that they don't see. Hell. Or sorry, hell. 
God, help. Boy, I'm glad. God. God, it would. In your prayers, thank God for Suzanne. Um. Um, the mode of knowing is irony. Donnie's, Dante's outside of that, so we could go through seeing what he does when the sinners themselves don't see it, right? So that irony functions to distance us from them. We see that they don't know. That's really important. That means for us, there may be things about our own lives that we don't see. That's one of the truths to bring away from the, from the inferno. How well do we see our sins? What we see over and over again is the, at, at, at every conceivable kind of level, people don't see that they don't see, right? In, in a whole great variety of ways, it makes us aware how important it is to step back from our lives, to look at things, even if it means it's going to be painful. That's what one of the things we take away from the Inferno. The mode of knowing for the Purgatorio is wonder. The souls are, have accepted their sins. They, they want to get better. They want, they desire to be with God. They want to get better. And they're constantly full of wonder. We're going to read a passage today that's such a contrast, the Inferno. Um, Dante's going to vow that he, to promise he'll do something. And the soul says, you don't need to make that vow. We trust you here. Would that have happened in the Inferno? <laughs> Absolutely not. Will it happen in our work world? Mm, I don't know. You can you know, go either way on that. But The mode of knowing in purgatory is wonder. People are recovering humility. So, so much of what goes, around them, goes on around them leaves them in wonder. Grateful, glad, happy. In hell, people are absolutely isolated in their worlds. They're in their private worlds. Absolutely isolated. When they're together, paired up, it's always because of God's economy of salvation or history or punishment. They're serving each other's objects to help affect their punishments. So Ugolino is eating Ruggiero's skull, right? It's not because they're tied, they're united in love. They each serve the other as a punishment. That's not so in the Purgatorio. People are picking up their burdens and sharing them together. They're helping each other. So they're getting freed of their sins. They're not using each other. They don't treat each other as objects. They're loving. And they're helping each other to love, to become better. So, one last, one last thing. You remember that in the anti-purgatory, I'm going I'm to go through it. We're going to go back to a couple of passages just for review. But remember, anti-purgatory is that, that condition of the soul before somebody actively takes on penance. It, symbolically, it, it's a condition that shows um, someone hasn't fully accepted Christ yet. And we know from that condition, it can happen early in life, it can happen late in life. It, Christ said that, and that, remember the parable about the guy who came to work on the last hour? And everybody who had been working all day resented it because you got the same pay. <laughs> that is, they all ended up in heaven. We learned that um, anti-purgatory is that condition of the soul that um, reveals a person um, before he's fully accepted Christ. 
So all the people in purgatory are where they are to show um, how responsible or irresponsible they've been in moving to God. Or no, or, or taking responsibility for their own sins is really what's going on. Because the people who do take responsibility for their own sins are, or the people who put it off for too long have to wait for a time before they can begin. So what Dante's showing, and this is one of the, one of the great mysteries that have been, that's, that's been, what, unraveled, by Don, I think by Dante and Shakespeare more than anybody, by, by the two of them, because they were part of a Christian world and they had literature and philosophy behind them. One of the things that Dante's showing us is that God's justice never stops, neither does its mercy. The, the modern tendency to separate those two doesn't exist here. God's justice doesn't stop. It didn't stop with Christ. Christ went to a cross to fulfill an injustice against God. But he did it with love. He did it with a divine love and called all of us to enter into it. So God's justice doesn't stop, but neither does his mercy. So the people are where they are in accord with their own actions, with how much responsibility they took for what they're doing. And we're seeing various stages of it, various degrees. Okay? Bob. Wait one second. I just So anti- Anti-purgatory um, doesn't mean people are in hell. They're still, they're going to, they, they will end up at heaven, all of them. But they are where they are um, in accord with their actions on earth. So like all the people who are actively undergoing penance, these people are where they are because of that fact, okay? Sorry, Melody, go ahead, sorry. No, that's okay. No, well, you were talking about how the, the souls in purgatory are happy to make that trip. Like they're happy to go through purgatory, and that's what I found to be the most wonderful part of this book is that the souls, you know, weren't like trying to rush through, like <laughs> trying to get to heaven because they understood they needed to be there, and and maybe the guilt of the sin, the recognition that the fact that they didn't deserve to be in heaven yet kept pushing them forward. So I love that part that. You know, because I've always thought you want to get to purgatory and get out of there as quick as possible. But, and I can't find it in the book. I can't find the, the, the section that talks about it. But the, the souls knew that they needed to be there. And that drove them to, um, to that knowledge, like you just talked about. They, they wanted to be there to work through their sins. They weren't there to try to get it done with as quickly as possible. So... I think that's just so interesting and yeah. insightful. Yeah. I love that. Part. Yeah, so do I. You you missed it. I I'm not even sure that I didn't have you on our on my mind when we were talking about it. Um I'm gonna, I hope you hear the fun in that. Because um one of the major points that I hit one of the major points that I made about purgatory, I think a couple of weeks ago in one of our classes on purgatory, is that among all these other things that I'm describing here, one of the things that at the center of purgatory is what I'd call this tension between um, um, gentleness and severity. This is not small, not small. It was a serious point when we talked about Cato. I'm, I'm not sure if you were here, Melody, but remember, Cato's very harsh. Remember when Cassell and Dante start singing? <laughs> he's all over them. He's saying, what are you doing? I mean, he's really sharp. 
Dante's showing that there's a necessity for sharpness at times because the human will can get spoiled, too soft. What's amazing is that it pulls together gentleness and harshness, not one or the other. And that's shown in the rule of the mountain. I, this goes to exactly to your point right now. Because I, I made this point, why aren't the soldiers rushing up? Because the whole point is they can't do it. They can, it's not about their wills. Remember when we talked about Odysseus as another wills? Any, any, I, I guess they call it A-type a persons or you know whatever they are. You know, people who want to get on and accomplish something, get something done. If you're eager to get to heaven, the last thing you want to do is stop. But one of the things, to go to your point, one of the things that people going up purgatory have to learn is it's not up to them. Well, wait, it is up to them. Wait, I don't want to, I don't want to make this black-white. Take that back. It's not not up to them. It is up to them with God. They have to do some things freely, but they also have to work within curbs. So all of them desire to go up, but they also know when the sun goes down, they have to stop. So, and, and that's, I hope that's, I, I hope that's where we're going to get tonight. But so the rule of the mountain is when the sun goes, that is when grace is withdrawn. People have to restrain themselves. No matter how much they want to get to God, they have to work with their nature. That, that idea is so foreign to the modern world and to the fundamentalist world, I believe, because grace is going to do everything. Remember, we're in nature. Human beings have a nature. Dante's looking at it. So there's this combination of gentleness and severity that people are in joy, but there are strict rules. There are things you don't do. Remember the last words of the angel. What were the last words of your third test? Boy, I'm in a test mode today. I don't know what's going on with me. Um, something must have happened to me in this freeze. What were the last words of the angel? This is a good test. What's the last words of the angel when Dante passed through the gates, St. Peter's gates? Connie. Don't look, don't yeah. look back. Don't turn back. <laughs> and you didn't get you didn't get those off your notes. I know, I know. I was because you didn't get those off your notes. He said, "Do not look back." He's pretty serious. If you when you start that and things get hard, you can't go back. You know, purgatory means you're there. You keep, and what what we're gonna we're we're gonna encounter in a minute. Remember one of the lies that we'll we'll come across when we're on the level of the proud. They all want to give up. Carrying those boulders is undoing them. They, they all want to say, I want to stop. I want to stop. Enough. Enough. Um, none of us would know that thought. <laughs> stop enough. Um, anyway, yeah. Okay. Um, any other questions? And um, I, I might, if any other questions, and I'll, if. I want to get to the book again, so. No questions? Somebody have a question? Something's going on. Okay. Let's go. Um, turn to... To... 10. I'm going to try to do a very fast review of some of the characters we've already gone over just to make this concrete so we're not in abstractions in our head. Okay?
Um, when Dante and Virgil leave the shores after Cato has scolded them, Virgil's got his head down. He's embarrassed. He's a proud pagan. He's a proud pagan, and his head's down. Um, he has to be told to look up and use his senses. He has to get out of his pride, wake up, look, because they can't get on if he doesn't look up. They find a pass into the mountain to go up, and um, the first person they meet is in Manfred on page 210. Manfred represents the first part of the anti-purgatory stage because he's one of the excommunicated. Now this is so important. Excommunication does not mean damnation. The fact that you're outside the church doesn't mean you're damned. God, the, the, you know, it's, the church is an amazing thing and so many people get it wrong. Excommunication doesn't mean you're damned. It means you're in real trouble. Uh, but the first word they meet is Manfred on page 210. Then with a smile he said, Manfred, I am grandson of Empress Constance, and I beg you when you are with the living once again, go to my lovely child, mother of kings, with honor, Sicily, and Aragon. Whatever may be rumored, tell her this. As I lay there, my body torn by these two mortal wounds, weeping, I gave my soul to him who grants forgiveness willingly. This will be only one of a number of people we meet here who, who waited till the last breath. God's not a grudging God. He, he's not saying, why didn't you love me or you're go to hell. <laughs> it, I mean, it just, it, it's a God of love. So last breath, Manfred says this, and he's saved. Um... On page 211, true he who dies scorning the Holy Church, although he turns repentant at life's end, must stay outside a wanderer on this bank for 30 times as long as he has lived in his presumptuousness, although good prayers may shorten the duration of his term. So two things, God's justice isn't, isn't done away with. He's there because of his mercy, but prayers mitigate. They will help. Um, he's got to do 30 times the time that he delayed. That is to pay back, to, 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 to meet God's justice. Okay. Um, go on over to um, 2.16. This is Balakwa. <laughs> he's among the indolent, the lazy, the the apathetic or you know whatever you want to call him I love the description of him they come across this figure who look who's just so limp it's like he can't be bothered with anything page 216 there was one there who you could tell was tired for he sat with his arms hugging his knees letting his head droop down between his legs oh my dear master look see that man lazy were his middle name the shape turned if you're so energetic run him up <laughs> Go down. His lazy ways and his sarcastic words made me half smile, and our old replied to Balakwa, um, I'll not have to worry now about your fate. Um, he can't be bothered. He's just, he's limp and indifferent, and that's the way he was in life. But here he is um, on page 218. They go farther. Watch what happens here. I'd already parted from those shades following in the footsteps of my guide when one of them back there pointed and called that soul climbing behind me. The other one, look, to his left, no light is shining through. 
He seems to walk as if he were alive. Hearing these words, I turned around and saw souls straining in amazement at my form. Here they in, they're enjoying the wonder of the moment. Dante's got a body, so light isn't passing through him. He's casting a shadow. Comically, once again, he doesn't belong. Um, but the response here is wonder and amazement. Um, page 219, Dante speaks to them. We are all the souls who met a violent death, and we were sinners to our last hour. But then the light of heaven lit our minds, and penitent and pardoning, we left that life at peace with God, who left our hearts with longing for the holy light of him. On page 220, um, Jacobo says he waited until the end of life, and then we um, we did the Buoconte scene on page 221. I'll just recall it, 221 at the top. On Buoconte, remember he was in the battle, he was wounded. Go down below. Um, there I was blind, I could no longer speak. Um, I could no longer speak, but as I died, I murmured Mary's name, and there I fell and left my empty flesh. The dark angel comes to get him, and the angel from God comes to take him away. Um, so he's saved, because he said Mary's name with his last breath. Dante is so clear. If there is a spark, it doesn't matter how small, if there's some good in a person, it gives God something to work with. So it, it really sharpens the contrast between the souls here and those in hell. If anything, what it makes clear is that there's this adamant, rigid refusal to receive grace. I think it's the sin of the whole one. When Christ talks about the one unforgivable sin, I'm not sure that I understand this correctly, but I think the one is that you turn away from an offering of atonement. So if you compare just these characters to those in hell, you get an, a, a clear sense of how um, stubborn, um, implacable the human soul can become uh, to, to its own harm. Page 222. Um, page 222. Before he leaves this area, he meets Pia. She says, and I want to take a minute with this. It's, a, it, it's one of the minor ones. The other ones that we've read had a little bit of a narrative, a little bit of a story. We're given almost nothing here at the bottom of 222. Well, please, when you're in the world again and are quite rested from your journey here, a third soul following on the second said, Please remember me. I am called Pia. Sienna gave me life, Merima, death, as he knows who began it when he put his gem upon my finger, pledging faith. Why did Dante put Pia here? What does she serve? She was married to her husband, and the husband murdered her. Um, he didn't have to put her here. Because he's had enough souls, enough figures showing souls waiting to the end of their life, doing what they do. What, what does she serve here that the others don't? Not Jacobo, not Biocante, um, not Balacqua, not Manfred, none of them. Why did he put Pia here? What, is she, what does she show us that makes her different as a character from the other characters we've seen up to this point? Set her against Francisca. 
Who's Francisca? I, I'm trusting you all remember. Because we've gone back to her a number of times. Her and Paolo, right? Yeah. What's the difference, yeah. Connie? Go well, ahead. Yeah, I, I, is Pia similar to them uh, losing her life um, quickly? And even though she was repentant, undoubtedly, um, uh, unlike Francesca or Francesca, is that what is Pia in that sense? Um, like Francesca, you know, she lost her life. Although she repented, you know, I guess she had, you know, she repented. She she made it to purgatory, unlike uh, Francisca. Yeah. Anybody but it else? was a fast, fast end, I guess. Anybody else? Was she more innocent? Meaning what, Anne? I'm not... Well, that with the other ones, there was more... I guess more about their sin where she was sinned against by her husband. I don't know. Maria, yeah. Um, so because of marriage, it's like one person, husband and wife. So maybe that's why she is there, like reminding of that sacrament. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think I think we're meant to hold Francisca in her mind because this is a woman. Her life was taken unexpectedly, just like Francisca's. The difference is her soul was better disposed than Francisca's because what's clear here is Francisca blames God. The interesting thing about Pia is she's not being, blaming anything. And what's remarkable is we don't see her holding a grudge against her husband, even though he killed her. She put off something in her life, but there was something good enough in her soul to bring her here. But she has none of those grudges or resentments. It's sort of amazing. Her husband took her life, and she's here, and she's saying, please remember I'm called Sienna, you know, Pia, Sienna gave me life, Merima, death, as he knows, the guy who put his gem upon my finger pledging faith. Um... Um, it's it's an interesting tenderness that Francisca didn't have, and I think the others didn't. I think what Maria said is to the point because she's carrying a marriage in herself, and like Francisca, remember Francisca's husband killed them, her husband killed Pia, but you can't hear this her words without feeling a real sharp contrast between the two women. Um, okay. Um, one last one, 226. They come across Sordello, who was a troubadour poet like Dante, and a good man. And this is one of the first invectives against Florence that will recur. I mean, it's just, it'll be um, a theme that Dante comes back to again and again and again. Page 226. I want to read some of this because it's really important. It's going to go to uh, something we're going to experience in a minute. Um, Sordella says on page 226, Ah, slavish Italy, the home of grief, ship without pilot, caught in a raging storm, no queen of provinces, whorehouse of shame. How quick that noble soul was to respond to the mere sound of his sweet city's name, 
by welcoming his fellow citizens. While now no one within your bounds knows rest from war, and those enclosed by the same wall and moat, even they are at each other's throats. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? <laughs> and if you look at political... God, if you look at what's going on, I mean, it just, it's gotten worse over the last 20 years, I think. Last, um, oh, wretched Italy. I hope everybody's here in America. I'm not going to do this, but I hope everybody's here in America because remember, this is about the commercial republic. Dante is, I've been claiming it, describing him as the prophet of the commercial republic world. It came into existence at his time. He's showing us the regime that that will give direction to the whole modern world. Everybody wants to come to America because in America you're free and you can make money. The prototype of that regime is here. This is Italy in the Renaissance. Okay. So whenever you hear Italy, you can at least think about you know us. We are we are the dominant power of the world. We are a modern commercial republic. That's what defines us. It's what differentiates us from other regimes. Okay. Oh, wretched Italy, search all, your, search all your coast, probe to your very center. Can you find within you any part that's at peace? Sorry. Um, what matter if Justinian repaired the bridle, if the saddle's empty now? The shame would have been less if he had not. You priests who should pursue your holiness, remembering that God prescribed for you, let Caesar take the saddle as he should. See how this beast has grown viciously wild without the rider's spurs to set her straight, since you dared take the reins into your hands. Um, he will go on now. Come see your city, Rome, in mourning now. Um, widowed, alone, lamenting, night and day. Line 114. My Caesar, why have you abandoned me? Okay, what's, what's Sordello's criticism? What's, what's he so worked up about? What does he mean when he says, you priests who should pursue your holiness, remembering that God prescribes for you, let Caesar take the saddle as he should. See how this beast has grown viciously wild without the rider's spurs to set her straight, since you dared take the reins into your hands. What's his criticism? On 228, for all the towns of Italy are filled with tyrants, any dolt who plays the role of partisan can pass for Marcellus. Florence, my Florence, how happy you must be with this digression, for you're not involved. Thank your resourceful citizens for that. They are. But that line, my Caesar, my Caesar, why have you abandoned me? What's, what's his criticism here? What's Sordello saying? Say it, Doc. Can you all say it louder, can you? That the church has overstepped its bounds. Wait, uh, Melly, did you hear my question? What's Sordello saying? Did you hear the quote? It's really important to look at on top of... Um, where am I? Sorry. What page was I on? To what? No, what? Yeah. Two. Two twenty-seven. Really important, you priests who should pursue your holiness. 
let Caesar take the saddle as he should. See how this beast has grown viciously wild without the rider's spurs to set her straight since you dared take the reins into your hand down below. Come see your city, Rome, in mourning now, widowed alone, lamenting night and day. My Caesar, why have you abandoned me? What's, what's Sir Della's criticism? Sorry, Doc, go ahead. Because the church has overstepped its bounds taken on a political role, I guess. So why, I mean, why would that have the effect that he's describing? Is there, wait, did everybody hear Suzanne? Could you all hear, say it again, Wander, don't you? Because the church has overstepped its bounds and taken a political role, so Caesar is not in the place he would be. So what's the problem? Did everybody hear that? Yeah, okay. What's the problem? Remember that the church was very much involved in politics at that time. You know, I've made the argument that one of the great accomplishments of the church has been to disengage itself from politics so that the separation between church and states is kept. It's, it's one of the founding principles of America to disestablish religion to, you know, so church and state can observe their proper authorities. Dante's being critical. What's what's the effect? What's wrong with the church becoming too active in politics, as, as Sardella's putting it here? That they've forgotten their role, and their role is to get people to heaven. Their role is to bring people to God. And when you're too busy trying to run the government, um, that the the role of the church has been diminished because you're you know because it's um, divided. Connie, did you have something? No, I don't think it's diminished. In fact, it's enlarged. It's taken over powers. What's the if the church assumes the power of Caesar? What what does Caesar lack that Dante's saying it needs? Without the writer's spurs to set her straight since you dared take the reins into your hands. What what can Caesar do that Dante's saying the church should not do? Because if the church tries to do it, it'll fail miserably. What's it what is Caesar's responsibility? I mean what's he supposed to do that that's peculiar to him and not to the church? Dave, is that you? I'm not sure. Does anybody have an answer? Oh, Bob, is that you? Uh, that's Karen. Caesar's <laughs> <laughs> responsibility is to govern the people. And I think Christ said it best, that give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. Can you, can you work in this without the writer's spurs? What's... Uh, Work in the writer's bird. Yeah, that's Dun that's Stardello's line that I read. What does that mean? Well, write the spurt back towards direction or speed. And I think that that could be a metaphor for how the church guides us or how we're governs, that's all. Or stays on the path. Yeah. Sorry? Or stays on the right path. Yeah, I think he's saying that that um, 
that one of the functions of Caesar is to impose laws, and sometimes those laws will be harsh. Sure. Can can you govern a wild ho? I mean, sometimes if you're looking at a beast. If you don't, if if you're, we we're back to where we were before. If you if you let pity get in the way too much, so you take away a spur. How well will you govern the beast, the animal? Caesar's law. What what happens? Well, here. I mean, look at you can look at our country and or watch our country in the last hundred years. What happens when laws get soft, and and you you want to mitigate them to avoid the harshness of them? Typically, what happens to a people? They don't obey the laws. Yeah, they don't, and then things get worse. So the image here is 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 ruling a beast, controlling a beast, and to do that, sometimes you have to be harsh, sharp. You have to use a spur. Laws can be sharp. If, if the church intervenes and the sentiments of the church come in to interfere with Caesar, lawlessness results. So there, here's this again, this, this tension between gentleness and severity. Our current uh, infighting about immigration would be an example of that. You can go lots of, yeah, I mean, you can take on, it seems that you can take almost every major concern or piece of legislation in the last 40 years I, I don't know how you can look at it and not see the faults that Dante's uncovering Dante will uncover them Shakespeare uncovers them this whole question of bringing laws and the harshness of them to get that is justice with love because once you go one way or the other you've got problems so Sardello's this is what it, what it going to be one of the earliest things we're going to see repeated again and again. Because remember, Dante's watching a commercial regime go into decline. Would you say that America is, at a, is in a point of ascent as a country? Are we continuing to become better? Or have we passed over that on our, on our way into a decline? And if so, why? I mean, we're, if, if we have, what's the turn? What's going on? So Sordello accompanies Dante and Virgil, you know, through the, the, the Valley of the Princes. These are the people, remember, who've been too preoccupied in a good way because they've all been busy. So they're the closest one to the gates. So we've moved from excommunication to the indolent um, to the preoccupied. Excuse me. And now we're going to um, go through the gate. We were here before... Um, I, I don't want to take too much time on page 243. Remember that this is so important. On page 243, Dante and Virgil have slept in the Valley of the Princes. It'll be the first night. There'll be several. Um, this is the first. And it's during this evening's sleep that he has this dream of the eagle, Lucia, on page 243, carrying him up. So just as in hell... When Dante crossed the Styx, remember, from the world into hell proper, he had to cross a river, a threshold, a boundary. It's a boundary marking the unconscious and the conscious, that that first step into sin is always unconscious. It's too deep. The first step into grace is too deep. We, we commit ourselves to an act thinking it's our own when our understanding theologically is none of us could take that step without God's help because it's a grace that gets us there. It's something beyond us. 
So here, it's during his sleep that Dante is taken up to, um, to the gates. And on page 244, remember, he went through the three steps. We went through that. And then on page 245, um, um, the, the P's are put on him. And the, um, the two keys are described. One key was silver, the other was, this is 245. One key was silver, the other gold. First he applied the white one, then the yellow. With that, the gate responded. And remember, it's at that point that the angel says, at the bottom of the page 245, enter, he said, but first be warned. To look back means to go back out again. We either get serious and go ahead, even if we're tempted to, you know, back out, look back, keep going forward. Quickly, just to recover, um, I mean, to recall what we did. What are the two keys again before we start? What are the two keys represent? Remember, this is the beginning of the class when I read the passage from Scripture. When Christ asked Peter, who do you say I am? And he says, you are the Christ. And there's that amazing moment when Christ said, you didn't get that from anybody. Um, he has Christ's confirmation. You will be Peter on this rock. I will build my church. He did that knowing Peter was going to betray him. Wait, can we, sorry, can we take a minute with that? Christ knew Peter was going to betray him. He told him that. What does that say about Christ? And the, the leader of our church. The, the, whoever the Peter is in Peter's chair. In the chair of Peter. Karen. You, Understand? I can't. Do you have your audio on? Karen, did you have a response? I don't he understands know. our human nature, but he still has mercy on us. Sorry, I didn't, on my end, I, the audio was really screwing. Can you say that again? God understands our nature mm. and has mercy on us. Yeah. Anybody else? Well, we are told in the letters of St. Paul that we are, we are all Christ's brothers. And this is a, a, a moment in the gospel where he, he treats one of his apostles as, as a true, with the honor of, uh, of a brother. He gives them great authority. So an authority doesn't give everybody else. I mean, it's authority singularly mm -hmm. given to Peter. Yes. I think one of the, at least one of the, things that comes to my mind when I think about this moment because he knew Peter's going to betray him. I, I think he did that knowing that Peter could never serve well until he learned to know himself. I can't put it a better way. Can, and that means knowing your failures. Um, if, if, you, if you turn from the Gospels to Acts, when, when, when the chapters dealing with Peter present him, he is full of confidence. He cannot. He will not turn away. That's the man who just betrayed Christ. I can't imagine a man betraying Christ not going through a horrible grief. But the Peter we see in Acts is a man stepping up, moving forward. I think what we learn. One of the things we learned from Christ giving him the keys is that he wanted Peter 
to know himself. He would not serve well if he didn't know his weaknesses. Remember the, the I didn't read it, but the passage before, the letter for, in, God, God, wow, I didn't put it together until just right now. In the, in the passage before that from, from 1 Peter, Peter is saying, don't lord it over people. Don't lord it over. Serve them. Do this. Do this. Do it willingly. Don't be grudging. That's the guy who betrayed Christ. The, I'll put it another way. What would have happened if Peter had not betrayed Christ and he assumed the power of the papacy thinking he was perfect? There's nothing wrong with him. What kind of a ruler would he have been? No. A tyrant. A tyrant. He certainly wouldn't have been the ruler that he went on to be. Yeah, it, it's Christ showing that if if how important it is that we carry our sins with us, not not in despair, not let them pull us down, to carry them as a strength to help us be better in whatever we do. So. Here he passes through what the, the the gold and the silver keys again. Anybody want to step forward on this? Do you remember what they are? Silver key represents wisdom, and gold key represents the authority to bind and loose. Cake, yes. Can you flesh that out some? Can you explain that a little bit more to just make it more concrete? So those are the keys, and what they represent was what Christ wanted Peter to possess. Those qualities. So the gold key is the authority to bind and loose. Mm -hmm. Did you have the power to do that? Wisdom. The silver is the wisdom with which to apply that authority to know. Because remember earlier in um, one of the... One of the episodes in the Inferno, one of the men, it was um, um, Guido um, de, Montef Guido de Montefeltro, um, who told the story that he agreed to tell the Pope what to do on the understanding that he would receive absolution for doing it. So it wasn't a true confession, he abused it. So both the Pope and the priest abused the power of forgiveness. Um, so the gold key means having the authority to do it. The silver key means the wisdom to make that real because it can be abused. Priests can abuse their power. So can bishops. We know that. We know that. So the doors opened and Peter and um, Dante enter. Virgil. Sorry, Dante and who? Who did I say? Peter. Pe Dante and Virgil with Peter in spirit. <laughs> oh God help me I need help on page 247 247 we finally squeeze through the needle's eye so they they find their way to the first ledge of the proud why the use of the needle's eye why that metaphor The book of Jesus' parable about entering kingdom of heaven is uh, it's more difficult for a man to pass through a needle's eye. Um, yeah. Yeah. That. Melody, relate it now to what's going on concretely in this instant. 
Why is that appropriate here? Uh, because they've passed through the needle's eye to get into purgatory. I mean, um, could they do this on their own? I'm sorry. Could they do this on their own? No, no. I mean, no. Um, we we never do it on our own. I I guess I don't know what you mean. Well, I think that I mean it. Um, what go go back to the needle's eye parable of the Christ that you mentioned. Go back. What is he? What would what did Christ say? Uh, I think this was the parable, or when the rich man said he he would do anything in order to follow Jesus, and Jesus said, "Sell everything that you have and and follow me." And that was too much for that man, so um, he walked away. And Jesus said, "It's easier for someone to pass through the, the eye of a needle." And in this instance, um, it was there. I mean, they had. They had done something very difficult in in getting to purgatory. I mean, but but I guess I don't understand what you mean by they didn't do it by Sorry, themselves. Sorry, what he's saying is what's impossible to man isn't is possible to God. That even if men can't pass through an eye of a needle, mm -hmm. God can. It's the camel can. Or sorry, the camel can. Um, so it's I I think he's saying. What's happening now is only because of God's help. Man can't do that alone. Um, and a camel can't get through. Um, but what's impossible for men and camels are, you know, is not for God. So I think the metaphor here is, is meant to remind us that what's happening right now is extraordinary. That we can't forget that what's happening is with God's help or it wouldn't take place. Now here's where it gets tricky. Um... You know, because we've gone through this, that every ledge has its own contrapasso. Let me see if I can cover this quickly because we're getting short on time. Every ledge has its contrapasso. Every edge has its every ledge has its goads and um, Check. checks. And every edge, every ledge has its prayer. Um, right. It's so, a yeah, and a song, but. So, it, quickly, to, to try to help with this, what's the contrapasso? What's the burden on the level of pride? I want to look concretely at the scenes, but to try to help, I want to get some of this stuff out because I think it'll, it'll help you guys hold on to it. What's the contrapasso at the level of pride and why? I want to just do the contrapasso for, for pride, envy, and wrathful. What's the contrapasso on the level of pride, the ledge? And why? Okay, so they're carrying huge slabs of stone on their back, which forces them to bend over because uh, as prideful people, um, they should have been oh, thanks, uh, looking up toward God, toward heaven, helpful, but the stone is reminding of their, of their sins, of... Uh, and pushing them back to uh, um, humility, uh, the position of humility, of bending down, looking at the ground. Yep. On two fifty one, I'm, I'm going to try to go through this some quickly because I want to, I want to get, I want to get to the concrete things, but I'd like to get these principles out. 
on the bottom of 251, true, some of them were more compressed, some less, as more or less weight pressed on each one's back. But even the most patient of them all seemed, though his tears, seemed through his tears to say, I can't go on. Everybody on the level of pride is um, asked to carry large burdens because they didn't in life. They were too proud. Now they're being asked to bend over to carry these weights because in life they were too above it. They didn't do some of the hard things. Too proud, above things. So they're learning humility. Now this is what's really crucial. The effect of bearing these burdens forces them down. Um, as they crawl along the edge, they're going to see the, the, the checks on the ground. Remember, the, the checks are what? The checks are images of the sin itself. So, for example, the, the, the pride are going to see images of Satan and other proudful figures, right? So, the, the checks come to them easily because they're bowed over. They can't avoid them. To see the goads, the images opposite the sin, they have to strain their heads to look to the ledge of the mountain. So they have to work here. This is crucial. They have to work hard to see good. Because pr pr as proudful people, they were too quick to see negative and be above things. So Dante is really cut to just to me. Dante's teaching us how to see. Is that clear? So they say, um, but even though the most patient of them all seemed through his tears to say, I can't go on. They're at a point where they're saying, I can't, I can't bear it any longer. I want to quit. There's no quitting in purgatory. <laughs> okay, there's the, there's the contrapasso, yeah? The level of the pride. I'm, I'm going to come back to it to look at the examples because the examples are amazing. What's the contrapasso for the, the ledge of envy? Mary Jane, go ahead. Did you were you saying something? Your um, their eyes are wired shut. Yeah, why? Well, because they were envious of things that they saw, and so now that they now they can't see anything to be envious of. <laughs> You're right. No, no, it's true. It's true. Can 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 you flesh that out or make it simpler? Because I'm not sure that that clears it up for everybody. But well. No. What's problem with what's the problem with envy? The the proud are too above things. They didn't they didn't carry burdens. They were too above them. Too proud. Now they've got to bend over. The envious have their eyes shut. Mary Jane was right on. I mean because they were too envious, but can somebody explain that without using envy? Why why are their why why are their eyes wired shut? Why is this an appropriate penance? Remember, every ledge here, just like the contrapassos in hell, every ledge shows us an activity spiritually. So a spiritual thing that's invisible to us because it's inside is being made visual. Why are the envious um, having to bear shut eyes, closed eyes? What does envy do to the way people look at the world? It would 
Envy seeks to take away something that belongs to another. Can you relate that now to, yeah, Mike, can you relate that now to the eyes being shut? Well, if I can't see how wealthy another person is, or if I don't concentrate on it and make it a, an object of uh, desire to take it away from them, then uh, I'm not falling into the sin. Yeah. In life, they refuse to see the good in front of them because they wanted it destroyed. When somebody else had a good they didn't have, they rejected it. Now their eyes are being closed. So for them, um, they're being denied the good around them. But it, um, that, that in itself isn't keeping them from, I mean, that's only, it isn't keeping them from growing because they're still getting goads and checks, but they're getting goads and checks through spirits, voices speaking to them. So they're having to learn to see beyond what their eyes can give them. Crucial. We're sight-given creatures. We depend on our sight a lot, right? Take our sight away, how well would we do? And sometimes our sight makes us self-sufficient. We think we're capable. We can do great things. But once your sight's taken away, what happens? I mean, you have to learn to see differently. These souls can't see the world. They're denied it. But they're still being given goads and checks through voices whispering to them, speaking to them. So they have to learn to know through hearing, paying attention, taking in something beyond their eyes that isn't, does, doesn't come to them through their eyes. Is that clear? Bob, I did have a question about yeah. this level. Yeah. Um, it said in the, it mentioned Cain in the book. So I was, I was confused why Cain was in purgatory since he killed his brother. No, here, um, yeah, let me stop. We're going to get to it in a minute. It's one of the, it's one of the, it belongs to the golden checks. It's not a real person. Okay, good. We'll get to it. We'll get to it in just a second. Okay, good. But he's not there. For, he's not there. Okay, good. Okay. What's the, what's the, what's the contrapasso in the wrathful? Remember, anger is not a sin. Anger is not a sin. Wrath is. What's the contrapasso here? Well, there was a lot of smoke. There was a lot of smoke. What, what, okay, Mary Jane, come on. Flesh that out. Why? What is the smoke? What's that an image of? Why is that appropriate uh, for anger? Well, I don't know, but when I get angry, smoke comes out my ears. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. I think that's a pretty good description for pretty much all of us, I think. God. Oh, you just saved you just saved us, Mary Jane. Um, what are the let's see, I don't what are the Okay, sorry, let me go back to the envy. What are the what are the goads and checks for the envious? Sorry, what are the goads and checks? What's the what's the virtue opposite envy? If envy is wanting to see somebody lose something because you don't have it, what's, what's the virtue opposite that? Do you hear? Generosity. Yeah, generosity. Okay. 
these are all important, um, and and all of the goads will be opposite. It'll be envy itself taking things away. What are the goads check for the anger for the wrathful? Sorry. What's the check for anger? What's the virtue opposite anger? Meekness. Yeah. Um, and and anger is wrath. I mean, wrathful is the sin itself. So, is everybody following? On every level, people are learning to see themselves as they are, and they're taking up penances that are appropriate for their sins. And I'm trusting it's getting clear if it that every every sin has its root in anger. Envy is rooted in anger. So is wrath. Does anybody want to... Anger or pride? Or wrath, sorry. Pride. Sorry, sorry, pride. Pride, I don't know what it, pride is at the root of all of them, right? Pride is in envy. Pride is in wrath. My question is why? What is pride? What is envy? What is wrath? Let's tackle that. What is pride? Here, hold on. Let me have your attention again. I sent you that image. I'm not sure that you, you got it, but... Remember, the three lower levels, pride, envy, wrath, are love of evil. The soul is supposed to evil. The middle cornice is sloth. It's not loving enough. The higher three levels, avarice, gluttony, and lust, are love of good, but excessive love. So these three first levels are love of evil, so what, what are pride, envy, and um, wrath? And why is pride at the root of all of them? I and mean, why is pride at the root of envy and uh, wrath? What is pride? Love of self. Say again? Uh, loving like uh, yourself. Self-love above anyone else. Oh, right. Not love others. <laughs> right. There's nothing wrong with loving yourself. I mean, God says, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's a commandment. But loving yourself more than other people means you will make other people into objects. You'll, you will use them for yourself. You will turn people into things they're not. You will stand above them. Right? Pride means standing above, looking down on. Humility is doing the opposite. I mean, that's why the people are willingly carrying these boulders. What's envy? How is pride involved in envy? What is envy? Envy means being above somebody, wanting to see them lose something because you don't have it. How is pride involved in wrath? If meekness is the opposite of wrath, Meekness means putting yourself away. Wrath means making yourself more important so that you want to... The way you respond to somebody injuring you is excessive. You make yourself more important than the good of another human being. Is that clear? Wrath means smoke coming out of your ear if I can take Mary Jane's. You know, we, we, we cloud our passions because we get... Somebody's injured us. Somebody's done something that makes us angry or wrathful. When our response is um, to make wanting to hurt somebody 
more than our wanting to love them for their good, it shows that our pride is too much involved in our anger. We're making ourselves more important than the good of another person. So when they injure us, when we, when we respond, if we strike back at them, we do it in a way that overlooks their good. We're making ourselves again, more important than they are. So in every one of these lower sins, pride is involved. It's at the root of every sin. That's going to be true of sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust. Let me stop for a second because this is all really important. Does everybody, everybody understand? Any questions here? So to return home, if this is the theme, we can't do it. What Dante is showing is man cannot make that ascent. That mountain is Christ. It's fulfilling a law with mercy. That, that mountain is Christ. And Mary. Remember, every goad, every goad begins with Mary. She's the image of perfect natural virtue. Every single sin is answered by Mary. It's the first goad on every level. Ascending that mountain means man's putting, learning to put himself away to move with God in humility, to answer his pride, his envy, his wrath, and all the other sins. Okay. I want to go, any, any questions? I struggled a little bit with uh, one of the goads for, uh, for envy. Why, why, or Mike, Mike, let me hold you there. Let me, I'm going to, I'm going to go through them now, one by one. So we're, we're going to get to envy. Can you hold off for a minute? Okay. I, I want to do sure. pride. I'm going to take each one now and look at them. Okay. Okay. Two, 248. I'm going to take each one now concretely because I, I just wanted to get the principles out so we everybody had to help okay. knowing where we're going because I think it'll help the way you look at what happens here. 248. Dante and Virgil arrive on this ledge and they see on the face of the mountain, right? There's a path around the mountain and there's the face of it. When they arrive on the ledge, they see this on the face. 248. Bottom 247. Standing here before we took a step, I realized that all the inner cliff, which rising sheer, offered no means to climb. They're going to have to, here it is again, Melody, they're going to have to follow the path. They're going to have to find the stairs. They, they even, and no matter how much they want to go to God, <laughs> they can't just race there. There are things they're going to have to do. It was pure white marble on the flawless face where carvings and here's where I want to, this is so crucial, what, what's happening is sort of amazing here. On the, foss were, on the face were carvings that would surely put to shame not only Polyclete, who was one of the greatest artists of the ancient world, but nature too. The angel who came down to announce on earth the peace longed for by weeping centuries, which broke the ancient ban and opened heaven, appeared before our eyes, <clears throat> a shape <coughs> alive carved in an attitude of marble grace, an effigy that could have spoken words. One would have sworn that he was saying, Ave, for she who turned the key, opening for us the highest love, was also figured there. The outlines of her image carved the words, Ecce and Sile Dei, as clearly cut 
as is the imprint of a seal on wax. Why don't you look at the other parts as well, Virgil says. He looks again and he sees David. Go down below on 248. Um, Carved in the spread of marble there, I saw the cart and the oxen with the holy ark. A warning not to exceed, not to exceed one's competence. There's those limits again. Dante's facing them everywhere. It's like these voices all around us going, God, I I am so convicted by all of this stuff. I don't know about you guys, but this is hard for me to read. (laughs) God, Um, I keep hearing my wife behind a lot of these voices too. A warning not to exceed one's competence. Ahead of it moved seven separate choirs testing my senses. One of these said no, the other said yes, they truly sing. With equal art, the smoke which censor pours was traced so faithfully that eyes and nose could not decide between a yes or no. Ahead and far beyond the sacred ark, this is Davis, or David, remember, carrying the ark when he was dancing and his wife was embarrassed. And then it shows Trajan, who is a Roman emperor, greeting the woman and um, helping her, even though he had his troops with him and he stopped to help this woman. Okay, let's stop. What's going on? Page 248. He looks at the face, and this is what he describes. An angel who came down, appeared before eyes, a shape alive, carved in an attitude of marble grace, an effigy that could have spoken words. One would have sworn that he was saying Ave, for she who turned the keys did this. He sees David, to 49, ahead of it moved seven separate choirs, testing my senses. One of these said no, the other said yes. Yes, they truly sing. With equal act, the smoke which censor pours was traced so faithfully that eyes and nose could not, seem, not decide between a yes and What's going on? These are the goads, right? These are images of the virtue opposite pride. These are virtues of humility. The very first one, as is, the tr- as, is true for every life, is Mary. It's her humility. But what's going on in the way Dante describes the artwork here? Anne, what's he doing? <laughs> Somebody paraphrase, just put in your own words. One would have sworn that he was saying Ave, for she who turned the key. Ahead of it moved these choirs, testing my senses. One of these said no, the other one said yes, they truly sing. With equal art, the smoke which censors poured was traced so faithfully that eyes and nose could not decide between a yes or no. What's Dante describing? What's the nature of the art on the face of this mountain? It's so lifelike. So, say it louder, Dante. It's so lifelike. Can you hear? Go ahead. Can you flesh that out? What's going on? I don't know what's going on, but that's the nature of the art. <laughs> Come on, say something about that. What is, what's... What does that say about the art and the mountain? And did Doc, did, did you all hear Suzanne? Boy, is, is it all, it's so lifelike, Dante can't decide if it's art or real. Right? It's just... Here, let me go back. Let me go back. We all read the Iliad together, or most of you did, or... Um, what do we... Let's see, what recently, before Dante? Let's take the Inferno. 
Aren't there times during the Inferno when you were reading it that it seemed real? When, you, when we read the Iliad together, weren't there moments when you were reading Achilles and Achilles was real? I mean, whatever was going on, I mean, there could have been dinner in the kitchen or, you know, whatever's going on, somebody's screaming, you're reading it. While you're in that, that person is real to you. You're living with that person. Dante's showing us the nature of art, that one of the powers of art is it can so you draw you into it that it's real for you. And here he's showing how important art is. And the interesting thing here is a definition of art. The two arts that people are experiencing as a part of their penance is a form of art that keeps showing the virtues as if they're alive and the goads as if they're real. Now let me just ask this as a, I mean, I don't want to get sidetracked here. How much of what any of us experience through art today reveals real virtues? Genuine humility. Meekness. Generosity. I mean, those are the three goads, right? On pride, envy, wrath. I mean, I, I, I know of it. I can, I can think of it, but it's rare. I mean, I, I, immediately some things come to my mind. That, but Are you all following that what Dante's saying is that art is all around us? I, it's not only art on the mountain, it's in human beings, because human beings are living images of the goads and checks. We can't go to the store without seeing examples of somebody being too proud or somebody being meek. I mean, isn't that your experience? You go to the store and you see people being really proudful and doing things you're sorry to see and you see people who who are generous or meek or humble in what they do. I mean, Suzanne goes to the store a good bit and, and she often comes back and says she had an experience with somebody who, you know, who moved over or greeted her. There was a moment, I mean, she says it with a sense of gratitude because two people exchanged something generous. When you have those moments, you're grateful. And um, you have those other moments when smoke comes out of your ears. Smoke comes out of your ears. <laughs> so Dante's saying, goads and checks are all around us. Do we see and hear? Are we paying attention? Are we really seeing so, so that we're learning from it? Stop and think for a moment. If we're, if we're simply going about it, let's say, to go back to melodies, we want to get to heaven. You know, so we're being very efficient and going. Are we, are we really as aware of people as we would be if we were carrying our burdens and slowing down? Wouldn't we see differently, you know, if we were doing what these characters are doing, our eyes and our hearing would we would experience a little bit differently if we were carrying our burdens. I mean, that's one of the principles here. Um, time's about out quickly. I want to go to the... Um, so you know that, um, that all of the goads are on page 258 and 259. Just so I saw, here it is, but far more true to life, being divinely wrought, stone carvings there, covering the path that juts out from the mount. I saw on one side... Um, him who was supposed to be the noblest creature of creation, plunged swift as lightning from the height of heaven. It goes on and names a, a long series of two proud giants and Satan. But notice the line, just so I saw, but far more true to life, being divinely wrought, 
because Satan was made by God. So the image he receives, I don't know how to put this, is heightened, more exquisite, because Satan himself was, you know, divinely wrought. Um, let's quickly go to the goats. Um, on uh, and the sorry, yeah, um, Michael, we're going to um, the 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 envy. We're going to have to stop in a minute, but page two sixty four. When he when he climbs to the next ledge, he encounters the envious with their eyes wired shut. 264, the first voice that came flying past us sang out loud and clear the words, Vinum non habent, Mary, they have no wine. It's an expression of generosity, right? Because that's the, the virtue opposite envy. Orestes um, is, is spoken by Orestes' friend when his friend was trying to save him. Um, the Pilates was his friend. It, 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 um, he, he's a figure in Ag or in uh, Agamemnon. Orestes is the son who's going to kill his mother to avenge his father. Pilates is his friend, and Pilates offers his life for Orestes. So it's a supreme act of generosity. He's giving his life. Um, um, what Dante discovers here are are um, souls with their eyes shut. I want to do this quickly because our time's up, but give me two minutes here. On page 266, he meets Sapia, the bottom of 266. My brother, all of us. So Dante's asking, is there anybody here that speaks Italian? He does this a number of times. My brother, all of us are citizens of one true city. You mean, is there a soul who was a pilgrim once in Italy? What does that say about language and racial identity? If you come from Italy and you come from Germany and you don't speak the same language and you arrive in purgatory, is the assumption is you're not going to be able to work together because your language is a problem? Whatever goes on here, we're meant to be careful not to take too literally because she's saying all of us are citizens of one true city. You mean, is there a soul who was a pilgrim once in Italy? That is, he's looking for somebody Italian he can talk with. But so literally she's saying that but I think on one level we're meant to understand something is happening to transcend language ethnic barriers yeah she says on 267 I was Sienese there with the rest I'm, I mend my evil life with tears and beg of him that he reveal himself to us the name Sapia which means wisdom sapient I was not I always revealed in another grief I always reveled in another's grief she enjoyed it when people were sad. Enjoying that more than my own welfare. If you do not believe me, listen now and you will see how far my folly went in the declining arc of my long years. It happened that my townsmen were engaged in a battle just outside Coley. I prayed God for what already he had willed. Our men, well, it's one thing for God to will it. It's another thing for you to will it if you will it in the wrong way. Yeah? Our men were scattered on the plain and forced to take bitter course of flight. I was I watched the chase seized with a surge of joy so fierce 
I raised my shameless face to God and cried, I've lost all my fear of thee. It's close to blasphemy. I was the blackbird when the sun came out a while. Um, so she's here now doing penance because um, she was glad when somebody else lost because she was envious of what the city had. I want to read one more thing and then I want to get to Mike's um, question. He's going to meet a number of people here on the ledge of the envy. Um, on page 272, he meets Guido del Duca. 272 in the middle. Envy was quick to fire up my blood. Whenever I would see someone rejoice, you'd see me turning livid at his joy. I sowed this envy. Now I reap this straw. O human race, why do you place your hopes where partnership must always be denied? Now, we're not going to get the answer to this until 277, so I'm going to lead everybody up in the air. When Dante passes from the envy to the wrathful on page 277, here's what happens. The angel comes before him, so they're going from envy to wrath, right? Enter this way to stairs less steep by far than those below. The higher you get, the easier it becomes. So the, the more virtuous we become, the easier it, the help we have from our own goodness. So the more we struggle to get better, eventually we have the support of the goodness that we take into ourselves. Past him we went already climbing where Beate Misericordes from behind came ringing in conquer rejoice while my guide and I in solitude were moving upward I hoping to learn from his wise words with every step we took turned towards him and began to question him what did that spirit from Romagna mean who spoke of partnership and denial now remember back on 272 Guido says oh you, you miserable race why do you place your hope where partnership must always be denied? Dante still got that question on his mind, and the angel of mercy um, takes the, the P mark off his forehead. Now, a couple of questions here. We don't have time to answer them, um, but I've got a couple of questions, and I want to take Mike's. What did, what did Guido mean by partnership and denial? That where partnership must always be denied? Why do you always envy? Why does envy have the effect of putting people away? And why is it a why is it an angel of mercy? Why is mercy here appropriate as a response to envy? Um, Mike, you want to add? You want to ask your question now, and we can. Um, we will. All of us carry these with us <laughs> or take a minute to do what we can right now no you you've already answered it actually i uh it was the reference to orestes in uh in canto uh 13 right. that had me struggle i didn't i didn't understand how orestes was being used as a goad for for envy but you answered it saying that it was it was uh it was from a play by uh, euripides i guess Aeschylus, yeah yeah, yes. Yeah, so he w it was actually someone else. Polites was saying that he was offering his life for Orestes. So now I understand. Yeah. Can we, can we take two minutes quickly? What did Guido mean when he said, "Oh, human race, why do you always place your hopes where partnership must always be denied?" How's that an expression of of envy? 
Dante is asking this question, what did that soul mean? On page 270, what did that spirit from Munyon mean who spoke of partnership and of dread, or of denial? I'm sorry, Robert, what page? That's on 277. 278, the answer. Because you make things of this world your goal, which are diminished as each shares in them, envy pumps hard the bellows for your size. You make yourself miserable. What does that mean? Because you make things of this world your goal, which are diminished as each shares in you them, envy pumps the bellows of your size. It's Thanksgiving. Your mom is making two pumpkin pies. No, one pumpkin pie and one pecan pie. And you love pecan pie, and you learn that um, your aunt, with her family of seven, is coming over. And you know those seven love pecan pie. What's your response to hearing that news that your aunt is bringing her seven children who love I pecan pie? I make another pecan pie. What? I make another pecan pie. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're avoiding my question, Mary. What, what's your hey, response to you, that? You asked me. <laughs> Less for me. Yes. Is everybody clear? Yeah, so if, if you're deeming, in, in a, why, by, well, here we are, back at the commercial regime. If we're all after a gold pie, that's what our mind is set on. There's money, and it's limited. What happens when somebody cuts in to our enterprise, our risking, whatever we're doing? What's our response? Because you make things of this world, that is material things, which can be diminished, which can be lost, then we get envious because we're going to lose something we want. And if our desire, here, if our desires are limitless, and I'm taking they are, we keep wanting. What's going to happen when somebody comes in to take something that we want? We're going to envy. We're going to hope that they don't get it. Yeah? Why is the angel called the angel of mercy? And why is the song being sung, Beate Misericorde, from behind came ringing? Blessed are the merciful. Why is mercy an appropriate beatitude um, in response to envy. Here's Saint... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Sorry. Somebody, go ahead. Mercy increases as you give it instead of decreases as you share it. Mm. Here's what Thomas St. Thomas says. Envy and mercy are opposite. Envy, I mean, think because mercy is a generous, right? You're offering something in generosity. Envy and mercy are opposite. Envy gets sad when somebody prospers. Mercy gets, no, yeah, mercy gets sad when they lose something. They want to, they want to give to help out. Envy is we get sad when somebody prospers. Mercy flourishes when we, we get sad when somebody loses something. We want to see them get something. Is that clear? Is everybody seeing what's going on? 
that that what's happening with the penitents is that as they begin to carry their burdens, they begin to put themselves away and their world enlarges. Set that against the characters in hell. Their world is shrunken to that one thing. In purgatory, there's an expansion, a spiritual expansion. In vision, you know, the envious got their eyes shut. They're learning to hear. The anger, the wrathful are um, enclosed in smoke. Ecstatic visions are coming to them. They have to learn to see inwardly without their eyes. People are learning to see a spiritual dimension to things once they start carrying their sins. So their vision enlarges, it deepens, it draws them into communion with each other. Um, they're forming bonds. It's the very opposite of the action of the inferno of hell. So in a real sense, they're going home. They're, they are really genuinely, they're not there, but they're on their way. And they may get impatient. <laughs> I don't want to get to God. But they're learning everywhere to be patient, to trust, to work with their sins. So a way of working that's really at odds with the world is help making them better. Is that okay? Okay, we'll pick up here. We'll look at the... Um, I think I think we'll pick up here. I'll, I'll, I'll trust that everybody knows what's going on with Envy. We'll start with the Wrathful and, and we'll go forward. Two, in, I want everybody... If, if, even if you've read it, I'd like everybody to go back. In the middle of the Purgatorio, that is in the middle of the whole Divine Comedy, follow this, Inferno, Paradiso, Purgatory. At the very center of the Purgatorio, at the very center of this long work, are two discourses. Marco Lombard around page 280, I can't is going to give his discourse on um, free will that is absolutely crucial to this whole work. Shortly after that, Virgil's going to give his discourse on love. They are the two most important discourses of the entire work. And let me try to sharpen your interest in this. Virgil's going to make this claim. I'm not going to answer it, but I'm going to leave everybody with it. Virgil's going to say, he's going to, so, um, Mark Lombard is going to give his discourse on free will, what that means. Virgil's going to follow with his discourse on love. Virgil's going to say, the cause of all evil Get this, the cause of all evil is love. Now, how are we going to square that? That's at the center of the Divine Comedy. So, in the cantos that we're going to deal with next week, we're going to be looking at the heart of all of our earthly endeavors. Free will and love. And Virgil's going to say something that I would, I think will perplex most modern readers. It certainly would perplex a Protestant, certainly a Calvinist. Love is the cause of all evil. So how do we square that? What is Virgil teaching Dante? Is Dante being heretical? Is he being orthodox? What's going on here? Okay. So I want to I want to look at both of those discourses very closely. They're really important. Okay. You guys have a good week. Um, it's it's really good to see you all again. Genuinely good to see you all.
Um, genuinely, it's it's. I, I missed you guys last week, and it's. I'm glad you're all fine. I'm glad you're all fine. Um, you all be safe. Have a good week. Keep us all in your prayers. Would you please see you next week? See you next week. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.